the dark black. I'm the police, and I'm here to arrest you. You've broken the law. I did not write the law. I may even disagree with the law, but I will enforce it. And no matter how you plead, cajole, beg, or attempt to stir my sympathies, nothing you do will stop me from placing you in a steel cage with gray bars. If you run away, I will chase you. If you fight me, I will fight back. If you shoot at me, I will shoot back. By law, I am unable to walk away. I am a consequence. I am the unpaid bill. I am fate with a badge and a gun. Behind my badge is a heart like yours. I bleed, I think, I love, and yes, I can be killed. And although I am but one man, I have thousands of brothers and sisters who are the same as me. They will lay down their lives for me, and I them. We stand watch together, a thin blue line protecting the prey from the predators, the good from the bad. We are the police. Officer Taylor, end of watch. The Sun's Children Ketta sat across from me in the booth, cradling a cup of joe in his hands and blowing on the steam. This was a way shop cops often frequented to grab a quick bite during their shift. Ketta hadn't brought me here before. He hadn't wanted to until now. Instead of the old precaution of a black market panel on the table to ensure we weren't overheard, Ketta stood a small device on end near the bottles of red sauce and gold sauce and turned it on. Now we couldn't be interrupted by anyone instantaneously materializing nearby. Another kind of discretion. This particular piece of tech was what kept beat cops like us in business. When projections can be blocked by criminals, the law always has to show up in the flesh. I'm not some kind of monster, Ketta said suddenly, unable to look at me. He lifted the joe to his lips and inhaled its scent. It was still too hot to drink. I thought of any number of responses, but figured it best to say nothing. I don't enjoy killing. I don't. Our waitress arrived holding piles of steaming food. She was a cute brunette. Her button nose wrinkled as she concentrated on steering the plates to their proper destinations. I wondered if she'd heard what he said, then figured she must hear all kinds of cop confessions in these booths. We waited till she tottered away on her heels, down darkened aisles, and past other booths. Still can't get used to being waited on, I said to myself as she departed. Ketta took the opportunity to change subjects. Oh yeah? How'd you ever eat? I made a face recalling decades of pre-masticated pap, mostly from tubes. I don't think you're a monster. His face reddened, and he sat even straighter. This was already difficult for him, and my sympathy had pricked his pride again. He fought himself into a polite silence, though, and bent to his plate. The food looked real, like earth food from my childhood. I recognized a steak atop a bed of mashed potatoes, with grilled onions and peppers and a biscuit on the side. Ketta wielded his knife and fork with skill, cutting the steak into bite-sized pieces and matching it with bites of vegetables. I watched fascinated, then imitated him until I started eating like a real person. Even when I'd been off-duty in my cell, I hadn't ever done more than make myself a protein shake. Delicious. Our waitress carried a tray into the back of the way shop and slipped, sending the empty cups and plates crashing to the floor. A buzzing, artificial voice harangued her. She argued back until we heard a zap. She screamed. I frowned at Ketta. He shrugged. 
Life is cheap these days. That's the thing. It's cheaper for the owner to hire human help than pay for a fully automated shop, and a lot of people prefer looking at a cute girl anyway. We ate some more. You're not a monster. Taking a human life is the hardest, the ghosts of Sedna screamed in my mind and I shook my head. All you can really do is remember them. He looked at his mother's alleged murderer with a narrowed gaze. Why would I say such a thing if not to plead innocence? He waited for me to continue. I thought he was going to ask me about it then, all of it. I was afraid to share more than I already had. I didn't know what part of my complicated story might be the final fact he needed to arrest and execute me for my crimes. The names cycled endlessly in my head. Phalacus, Sidereal, Sorrow, Axic and Yang. My mother taught me, he said quietly, that nothing stands in the way of justice. I try to honor her every day I'm on patrol. He squeezed his mug of joe like it was somebody's neck. Mine, probably. I was six when she died, you know. I came home from school and saw a squad car at the curb. I thought maybe she'd driven it home like she would sometimes. But when I went inside, my dad was howling. And my sister was in an officer's arms, crying and crying. He took a sip of joe. I never cried. I never did. But I did know that when I grew up, I'd be on the force just like her. Ketta wouldn't look up from the gold flecks in the white table. I've been investigating her murder for twenty years, but there's always been something wrong with her case. Her official files are all complete, except for the last day. It says she was on duty with her partner, you, and that she collapsed suddenly trying to save you and died. But there's no record of what she investigated or who. She just died. And they said it was awful, but she couldn't be revived, and it was a mystery that could never be solved, and they quietly shut the case. In a couple years, the Dark Black had forgotten it. Everyone had. The food sat heavy within me. The rich tastes turned to ashes in my mouth. It wasn't anything particular, he told me. Talking about it just made me miss sorrow with an intensity I couldn't stand. I'd been abandoned so many times in my life, first by my mother as a child, then Noni then Papa, and then Sorrow. Anyone who got too close to me vanished. It was my curse. So then I investigated the legendary Inspector Bloom and his mysterious disappearance, decorated soldier of the Motor Wars, holder of the record among every inspector in the orbs for the longest continuous service without a day off. Ten years. Twelve. And then he suddenly disappears, an hour after his partner is found dead in her chair. He disappears forever. I've constructed a million scenarios of how you did it. How she discovered some secret scam of yours and got in your way. How you faked your own death and disappeared into the red orb, or the moon, or the asteroid belt, or... He shrugged and slurped his joe. It must be getting too cold after all this talk. He signaled to the waitress and she appeared with a smile and a refill. One for me, too. I could get used to having humans wait on me, after all. I'm not telling you this because I think you'll tell me the truth or solve the mystery. I'm telling you all this because you're my partner. and You have no idea what we've just stepped into. I thought about that for a while before I got it. Omen Dial. Omen Dial, he nodded. Mistress Starling has just opened up a nasty little box for us with a monster inside. Why? Who is he? But Ketta wouldn't answer my question right away. I'm telling you this now because 
I've accepted that you have been in a coma for the last 23 years. Every scenario I ever constructed had you alive and living somewhere in the orbs, but now that I understand you really were comatose, I'm left with just a handful of motives. Why did you try to kill yourself after you killed her? It was obviously a rhetorical question, but I strained to shout my innocence at him. I knew it would do no good. We were both dark black. We'd had our fill of criminals pleading us to believe them. Some of them could be really convincing, too. And since you've really, truly been out of it for the last 23 years, you don't know how things actually work anymore in the orbs. You still think it's just a few monolithic institutions, and that your fealty to one or two of them is enough to get you by. But it just ain't like that anymore, Inspector. You can't trust the councils and estates to protect you, or even the Dark Black. I hadn't expected the Dark Black to take care of me since Marga Abbott had been named Dr. General, but Keta didn't need to know about that quite yet. It was true what he said, but I wasn't as naive as he thought. I'd seen the graft in corruption among our fellow officers, how they looked out for themselves and not each other. I'd seen it in the permissive silences of my super, and the bribes that the officers accepted as regular salary. And then I saw where he was heading. Omen Dial is dark black. I said. He nodded, looking up and down the aisle to see if anybody was nearby. A captain in the red orb. Look, just about everybody's on the take. They think I'm some kind of freak because I'm not. He stopped himself with a bitter laugh. But look who I'm giving a lecture on corruption. A man willing to murder his partner for personal gain. I grimaced as if kicked in the gut. But I didn't say a word. This was my burden. If I had only been able to take care of Sorrow, then none of this would have ever happened. My eternal punishment was having her son blame me for her death. What I want to know, he continued, is why you came back to the Force. Didn't you pack away enough in your original scam? Or did somebody steal it from you while you were out? I wonder what it was. I waited for him to get back to the subject at hand. He finally sighed, seeing I wasn't giving him the opportunity to explode all over me again. We can't confront Captain Dial about Tanitha Lex Starling. It just isn't done. I had to learn that the hard way. It's why I'm a 29-year-old beat cop. We've got to come at him from a different direction. If we shine our light on his racket, his superiors will just close ranks and reassign us to the Black Orb. We need to find another way. This mind cloud was even more closely packed than I thought. I didn't know how good internal affairs might be at their work, or how clean Gardier might be herself, but I could easily see both of us wearing shackles in their containment unit, waiting to hear our fate. But Samael had been right all those years ago. I should leave strategy to my betters. It's just not my strong suit. There were enough twists and turns in these cases to tie a poem into a giant noose. I was suddenly weary of all the deceit and darkness I'd found here in the future. I pushed my half-eaten meal away. Abe, can you hear me, Abe? My eyes closed, my shoulder pressed against the clam mattress beneath me. I smelled the familiar clean scents of my old cell in the Passertine colonies. Papa's voice was a siren song drawing me down into the nightmares once more. Abe, yes, Papa, I'm coming. I opened myself up to the horror again. But the nightmares did not come. Where was the yawning pit to fall in? Where was the Byzantine maze of the motor nest? Instead, I woke more fully. 
but I missed Papa so much I kept my eyes squeezed shut, fighting to reach him. I'd live through every one of those dreadful days again if only I could hear his voice. But the room remained silent. I felt acutely the air through the hairs on my arms, fluttering my eyelashes. I was too close to full waking to hear him. But then I did hear his voice. Abe, my eyes opened in shock. Papa! I couldn't focus. It might be from the leader bottle I still clutched in my left hand. I put it down and studied the dim room, searching the shadows. My cell here on Kadya held nothing but my bed and the still in the corner I'd built. Its intricate shadows could almost hold a man's shape, but I scoffed at that. That was an alcoholic talking right there. Can you hear me, son? It was him. His voice spoke in my head. I sat up and touched my temples, as if I might reach him that way. Yes, Papa, I cried aloud in my head. A knock at the door startled me, and I stumbled to my feet. In my bewilderment, I expected to see him standing there in the hall when I opened the door. But it wasn't Papa. It was Ketta. I sat beside Ketta in the chopgun seat of the hammer car. It was the middle of the night. We both kept quiet. He hadn't spoken more than a few words since our heart-to-heart -heart at the way shop the day before. I was still calling for my father's voice inside my skull, but Papa had vanished as if he was never there. I groaned, scrubbing my eyes with the heels of my hands. My hangover was in full effect, pounding on the back of my eyes like an assault team banging down the door. My impassive partner rolled the hammer car silently down the darkened streets. Cup of Joe? I asked him. He just shook his head no. I couldn't get a read on Ketta. I didn't know if he was taking me to friends or foes. I wouldn't be surprised if we cruised up to a dark black station so he could hand me over to internal affairs, or if we were going to stockpile some weapons in a hideout and start our own private war against them. Then he dropped us into a G-twister and we roared along the underway. As it turned out, we were going to do neither. At sunrise, Ketta led me up a manicured walk that wouldn't look out of place among the classical parks of Europe. It was a jarring scene, a big 19th century manor house surrounded by the familiar sights of the late 23rd century. But this oasis of cobblestones and topiary was too serene to be a threat. What are we doing here? I grunted at Ketta, wanting some sort of preparation as we neared the glass double doors. The building they accessed was a brown Edwardian edifice, low and blocky, with palm trees at the corners. We're on a call. Aha. I loosened Scarby and Saul in their holsters, but Ketta shook his head at my preparations. You don't need your powder dry, Bloom. I had her call in the dark black, so we could come here without arousing suspicion. She reported an attempted burglary, and we're just here to take the details down. Okay, then. Who's she? He opened the door, and it swung silently inward. Someone I trust. The interior was no less grand than the exterior. Turkish rugs lined hardwood floors. Gilded beams arched across high-vaulted ceilings. We walked unaccompanied from the main hall into one of the wings. An arcade of glazed windows looked out over the garden through which we walked. Our hammer car was parked at a distant curb. Behind it, we could see the pink and purple and orange carnival of the orbital beyond. It was a wealthy orbital in an exclusive hood on the third ring of the blue orb. We were close enough to Earth to see it floating in the sky.
The orbital was a fancy confection of buildings and structures so outlandish I could only guess their functions. Many of them probably had no function at all and only existed on the whims of the scions who built them. Keta beckoned to me. I followed him into a narrow hallway with doors on either side. He spoke with someone on his comm, whispering a few words before turning abruptly at a door. He opened it. Within was a grand room, dominated by a four-poster bed with a canopy of crepe. Sturdy, antique rosewood furniture lined the walls. A tapestry of a hunting scene hung on one wall. A portrait of an ancient nobleman hung on another. In the bed lay an old man. Ketta frowned. This wasn't what he expected. I stepped away from him and my hands fell on my pistols. He shook his head at me, a little confused, but not at all on his guard. Scarby and Saul were quiet, too. I settled down. Is it him? the old man asked hoarsely. No, she isn't here yet, Ketter replied loudly. I guess. The old man gazed blankly at us, sightless and toothless. His hoary old head was almost fleshless, too, nodding, doddering on his weak neck. A hand rose, trembling. Abel, he wheezed. I recognize this man. Fekrim! Without another thought, I stepped forward to clasp the old hand. Ah, there he is, Ma Benchot. Seeing Fekrim again was second only to seeing my father in the flesh. A tremendous joy filled me, and tears sprung to my eyes. I kissed his hand. What are you doing here, Fekrim? How did you find me? I know, a woman behind me murmured. Isn't it all terribly improbable? I turned to her. The woman stood tall and proud beside Keta, his hand in hers. She had a long, unbound sheaf of unruly black hair. Her face was plain, but handsome in its strength. Her strong chin tilted up to me, and her generous mouth smiled. I could see love in her eyes. Keta looked fondly at her, an expression I'd never seen on his face. Who's this here, Vekram? One of the daughters you told me so much about last time? She's beautiful, you marachod. But they laughed at me, not his daughter then. Don't you recognize me, Abel? It's Sanchal Park. It's not that I was an orphan, but my dad never did recover from the loss of my mom. He shut himself away in his room for most of my childhood and did the bare minimum to raise two children. Not that I blame him. It cost him, and he made an effort I can't even imagine. When I graduated and went away to the academy, he disappeared in the forests of Manitoba, where he still lives in solitude in a one-room cabin. I had no one but my sister, but she had no space in her heart for me. She found what she needed in the Church of the Ill-Define, but I couldn't join her there. It's just a bunch of people sitting in a circle, telling each other things they want to hear. I needed more substance than that. The thing is, I was already an introverted child, and after my mother's death, I withdrew even further into my shell. By the time I was ready to begin my adult life, I did it all alone. Beckram had asked Ketta to share more of his past with me, and out of respect for our shared friend, he'd unleashed this torrent of self-reflection. Now Beckram filled me in on his own life. After I retired from active duty, I began teaching introductory detective courses in the academy, but I couldn't sleep at night. Although I did everything I could to investigate it, I never did find out what happened to my old friend Hebelard Bloom 
and his partner, Saro Oville. It was as if they never existed. But one day, I heard that young Ketter was at the academy, so I befriended him. We became quite close, and he only ever took exception when I mentioned anything nice about my old friend, whom he was convinced had murdered his mother. I didn't push him too hard. His reasoning was sound, and as a detective I couldn't fault his methods. But I took him in and watched him grow. Now Sanchel spoke. Her voice was so melodious and smooth, where before it had been all gravel. Vekram introduced me to Keta years ago. You could say we've adopted him, even though he hardly ever sees us, and he's made it his life's ambition to find one of our other lost sons and have him executed. But how have... I mean, how old are you now, Sanchel? She laughed at my discomfiture. This is a wild world you've woken to, Abel. I celebrated my two-hundredth birthday several years ago, and I've really never felt better. There are treatments available now to anyone with the money to purchase them. This was a taboo as deep as our fear of robots. I mean, I'm so glad to see you. You know that. It's just... This is madness. Has everyone forgotten the obligated and the fall? Are you willing to repeat history for just another few decades of life? But nobody's forcing you this time, Vekram said hoarsely. If you don't want to, it's not the demands of immortality. It's just the absence of aging. A big difference. But I shook my head in horror. Humans would repeat the same mistakes, fueled by their insane desire to escape death. I recalled how the motors had seen us as biological messes that should be worked to death. Were they wrong? They realized I wasn't getting it. Sanchel tried. Yes, let's talk about history, Abel. You know, as an anamethodist, I study the rise and fall, the process. The orbs are almost a hundred years old, but although we've filled the solar system with humans, we haven't escaped the horrors that haunt us. Sanchel spoke energetically, happy to be back on her favorite topic. She crossed the room with an urgent stride and pulled open the curtains. We blindly squinted at the glare of light that poured in. She pointed at the first orb, the gold orb shining in the sky. We are all still children of the sun. Humanity worshipped our star as a god for millennia, and then dissected it with science, and yet the more we investigate it, the less we know of it, for the edges of the flame do not end at its surface. She crossed to me and clasped my hand in hers, desperate to impart her romantic epiphanies. We are the edges of the flame, burning away in this void. All matter is, and people are sacks of fluid cooking at a temperature just below that of boiling water. We are the cooling cinders of the explosion. The explosion is all there is, so slow it takes ten billion years to complete. Once we learn the patterns and mechanics of the sun's explosion, why, we will know everything. This was updated anamethod rhetoric, and I still wasn't buying it. Life is bricks and glue, just like anything else, Sanchel. The reason it remains unknowable is because we can't measure it yet down at the quantum scale, where so many of its effects are. We aren't run by calculations. We're creatures of instinct. I looked to one side to see how Keta received all this nonsense and saw that he stood in respectful silence. 
How we behave, and what we believe, and how we evolve over time is only the last flickerings of the flame before we die out and give ourselves back to the darkness. You see, we are just a trembling waveform in the ether, a brief signal against the hiss of deep space, and our many endeavors are a struggle against the knowledge that even the star that gave birth to us will some day extinguish. The orbs themselves are just a bloom of fading light, an architectural expression of our star dispersing into the void, from deep within its heart, all the way out to the solar boundary. Everything we build, these habitats, these hammer cars, even these robots, are part of an unfolding design. Design? You mean you believe the sun is alive and thinking? I couldn't keep the disbelief from my voice. Not in any way we'd recognize. It is more that it is a system that is evolving, and we are its emergent properties, rising from the surface like steam. But my point, Abel, is that my Anamethid study revealed that we are all part of this creation, and none are more important or valuable than any other. Got it. I was being led into a trap set by my own prejudices, but those prejudices had kept humans alive through more than a few ice ages and world wars, and I wasn't ready to give them up because of a single speech. What she means, Vecrum said in his detective's voice, is that everybody is on your side, and nobody is. No, Sancho contradicted him. That isn't what I mean at all. Abel has never been a philosopher, Sanchel. He needs to know how this applies to him in his daily life. Right, Abel? Well, every one of the sun's children is out for themselves today. We might be the edges of the flame, but we sure spend a lot of time burning each other up. What she's trying to tell you is how many kinds of life the orbs have these days, and none of them with any loyalty to anyone but themselves. You've got robots against rebots, and whole rings fighting rings, and the old against the young. Vecrim paused to cough, a rattle in his throat. I'm ready to leave it all. I've seen too much, and I can't forget any of it. I'm happy for that void, Sanchel. She smiled at Vecrum with compassion. Abel, this is the age of every man for himself. Get it, Gandu? I nodded. Vecrum always spoke a language I could understand. They'd all suffered through a couple rough decades and looked back on the sixties as some wonderful era where everyone lived in lockstep harmony together. While it was true that the motor wars had united humans as never before, by the time Sarrow died, we were back at each other's throats. People don't change, boss. I know that. I've met enough predators in this jungle. Keta spoke next. It's true I don't know much about history, but I think what humanity has learned, or at least what we're doing now as a species, is realizing that we can't control it. Any of it. Prohibitions always fail, and innovation always leads to new solutions. The bet we've made is to share the orbs with all our foes, knowing that we are all a step away from annihilation, just trying to survive each day. It's what I was trying to tell you about Omen Dial. Yes, we still have laws, and yes, the Dark Black still mostly enforces them, but there's a whole black market universe of other contradictory laws and agencies, and they're all corrupt as shit. Sanchel turned to Keta. 
And that is your problem, Keta. You are a child of this distrustful time. You look at Abel and see just another corrupt cop. But Beckram and I have known him almost his whole life and know that he is not. He is a hero. I balked at that, a derisive snort escaping me. I had never seen Sancho so young before, so young and ardent. She turned her open face to me. You are, you are, Abel. You and your father both. You joined the partisans without a thought and took the fight back to the motors, right back to the heart of them when so many others quailed at the idea. You even took the motors into yourself for a time and killed a colony because of it. Yes, and you have suffered for that crime ever since. I know you have, because you are decent. He is, Keta, and no amount of investigation or evidence you pile up against him will convince me that Abelard Bloom murdered your mother. Keta had grown more and more sour with each word of her speech. He stood apart with arms crossed against his chest, his lip curled, his brow dark. Vekram reached out to him. It's true. Keta, listen to her. Abel is not the murderer. But Keta shook his head and backed away to the door. I understood where the poor kid stood. Hating me was all he ever had. He couldn't give that up. What else would he be without his revenge? But I had to try. You need someone to pay for what they did to your mother, right? He nodded, unwilling to hear anything I might say. Well, I don't yet know the name of her murderer, and I don't yet know how she died, but I do know somebody pulled her plug, and when I find out who was responsible for the murder of Saro Oveal, by the time you find out, they'll already be dead. You don't know who it is, Keta said, with scathing distrust. No, I don't. Yet. But I'm the legendary Inspector Blum of the Dark Black, and I know exactly where to start. Matter Scrambler I found Nylerin and Ligny right as they left the station for the day. They were dressed in gaudy civilian finery that wouldn't be out of place at a funeral during Mardi Gras. Why, it's Abel, Ligny said, a smile dimpling her exquisite face. She wore a long black sheath that clung to her shapely body. Her face was painted bone white and framed in waving pink feathers. A sinuous platinum boa writhed around her neck and across her chest. Her partner wore what appeared to be a baggy clown suit with vertical stripes of primary colors and big red shoes. Abel, 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 Nyler enchanted in a playful voice. Why you looking so unstable? He was right. I hadn't slept much in the last twenty-four hours, and it felt like my heart and soul had been dragged through the underway at high speeds. But they didn't need to know about any of that. I got a favor to ask. And I have a favor to ask of you, dear Abel. Ligny wove her long fingers through mine and fell in step beside me, her clean, fragrant scent in my nose, her hand warm and soft in mine. If I hadn't been on a mission of vengeance over the love of my life, I would have probably said something stupid. Anything, Officer Ligny. Please, Annabelle. Anything, Annabelle. I'm having a dinner party next week, a tiny affair with a silly theme. Each guest shall bring somebody they find fascinating. I was hoping to bring you. I'd love to. Just let me know where and when and what I can bring. You're so sweet. Were all of your generation such gentlemen? She squeezed my hand. I blushed. What about Nylerin? Will he be there? If I was fascinating and single, maybe I'd be there to mingle, but I got the kids all night while my wife takes a flight. 
I followed them outside to a slideway that ran through rows of toy-sized citrus trees. Ligny picked orange bits and popped their peels open. We ate the slices in appreciative silence and looked up at the opalescent sky. A pair of girls floated overhead, hand in hand. Above them, a light flashed at the dome's edge of Kadya's orbital structure. That was probably something bad. Mobsters killing each other, or terror kids trying to breach the membrane, or mad scientists inventing a new way to destroy us. More work for the dark black, any way you cut it. And your favor? Ligny asked politely. Right. Well, you must know, the super has let us run the PD case up from Brassard and cruise to Starling. But we need more time away from our daily caseloads to take it farther. Sounds like a man asking a man? Nylerin drawled. For him to work a double shift, but I want to know why it's your plan and gives your career such a lift. Well, I mean, I am an inspector. That's what the Tarchik said when we were brought under the case, but I'd be happy to... Ah, hell, Nylerin, I don't know how this is supposed to work. I'll give you a gift or do you a favor. Keta and I need those days off. Name your price. Nylerin looked at me, disconcerted. This obviously wasn't the way bribes were given and received. Some people have trouble remembering that I really have no cultural context in this world. They get as aggravated as I do. Well, Abel, Ligny interjected smoothly. In situations such as these, a standard arrangement, she handed me another popped orange bit, is for you to pay him your wage for the day as well as a few bills extra, maybe a grand. A grand, I asked blankly. That was another week's pay right there, money that was supposed to free Papa from the hero ship. Sure, consider it done, Nylerin. But I need something else. The super won't give me a straight answer, but I need more authority uploaded onto my badge. Ked is new here, too, and doesn't have any friends. But he said if a senior inspector or detective would deputize me for this case, then we could get the leeway we need to operate. Nylerin shook his head and mimicked my voice. It's so hard... To understand what you're saying when you talk like this all the time. He burst out laughing, thinking his own voice sounded silly. Ligny did too. When they stopped ridiculing me, Ligny said, Well, that'll be more expensive all the way around. Probably another thousand for us and ten or twenty grand for the inspector. Make it twenty. She doesn't know you yet. Fine. This was getting expensive. I had no idea how to access my stored savings or transfer such large sums, but Keta could help me with that. Thanks for the help. And don't thank us. This was strictly business. As a matter of fact, you just got taken. I put an extra two grand in there and you didn't even notice. Uh, no, I didn't. Well, that's the price for her advice, Nylerin added. The only way you learn is by making a wrong turn. I looked at Nylerin, but I addressed Ligny over my shoulder. This cheapspeak garbage, he considered any good at it? Ligny laughed again. Not especially. Didn't think so. So we'll give you a report when we get back, but... Ligny cocked an elegant eyebrow. But? It'll cost you. That's the way, Abel. Don't give anything away for free. She squeezed my arm. Wish us luck. Unless that costs me, too. If we take more than a few days, then something's gone wrong. You can always count on us. Now we got to catch a bus. Stay down, Nylerin waved, his fingers flashing an intricate pattern, and stepped onto the yellow slideway heading toward a distant transport. I'll send you an invitation to my dinner on Taurus Day, Abel, Ligny said with one last brilliant smile. 
Oh, and the reason the super isn't giving you a straight answer is because he wants a little something too. Are you serious? I have to bribe a robot to get it to speak to me? Now I've seen everything. She looked at me with an adoring, condescending smile, as if I was her dear old grandfather, then squeezed my hand goodbye and stepped on a red slideway, vanishing from sight. Keta found me in my cell, working at my still. It was important to have a hobby, and I was becoming quite the amateur chemist. Since I'd become a man out of time, I found myself embracing the identity. I took more to old things of any vintage. My wardrobe was a slowly growing collection of bound clothing, representing earlier fashions, anything but this current peacockery. My still was an actual 19th century collection of glass and chrome from a Euro-Baltic pharmacist. Its purchase and safe transport up from Earth cost me a year's salary. I fussed over all the valves and little clamps, marveling at the simplicity of ancient silicon engineering, the arch of the swan's glass neck, and the onion dome of the wine heater. My current experiment was a lavave potato mash on a lower heat. I needed a smoother finish to my rot gut. Keta watched from the door as I made my final adjustments. He never talked of life outside work, but Sanchel had remarked on several tumultuous love affairs. He seemed to always have a girl, she'd confided, but the girl changed every week. Well, if girls were his hobby, then he'd need a steady supply of alcohol. Firewater, I proclaimed, lifting a small beaker filled to the top. He declined it with a wrinkled nose. Isn't that supposed to slow your reaction times? And decrease your judgment? And it hurts like the devil in the morning. As a bonus, I tossed back a mouthful. Oh, the firewater, how she burns. You ready yet, Bloom? A sign of thaw. Keta had never used my name before. I filled a flask to the brim. Now I am. Three hours later, our hammer car drove through an exclusive neighborhood in the seventh ring of the Red Orb. The hood was comprised of a loose cluster of small habitats floating in space seven degrees north of Mars' orbit. The Red Orb had changed the most since my time. What had been empty space before was now crowded with arcolos and platforms and orbitals of all kinds. Strips of white and gray metal, kilometers long, spun together in a stack. An even wider array spanned the void like a spider web, running lights ascending and descending its strands in regular flashing sequences. Keta listened to a moody ballad, a sad girl singing about love. We cruised past a huge glowing protoplasm of light, inside which we could see a toy city on a snow-capped mountaintop. Next was a slender junco with stacked pagoda roofs, narrowing to a point at the top. Keta consulted a dashboard readout. This is it. He didn't slow the car, but rolled past at normal speed. Our destination was a blocky fortress of a habitat below, designed by someone who had a thing for massive walls and tall towers. Its parapets sprouted actual cannon. I had no interest in seeing if they were in working order. It was a glamorous castle, though, with stained glass windows thirty meters wide. We swooped low into shadow, scouting from every angle. Its understructure was a hanging network of exposed tunnels, like a termite's nest pulled from the ground. The dungeon, I figured. We let the castle disappear behind us, then we circled around to the nearest public way shop. We parked the hammer car in its garage and gave the zonester on duty a twenty to watch it. Then we buttoned up and walked past the doors that would take us into the dining hall, leaving the garage by the vehicle exit instead. 
The port door flickered open and we stepped out into vacuum. It was the first time I'd been out in space since my twenty-three year sojourn, and I took a moment to behold the shining purple and orange curtain of galactic light. I had no conscious memories of my decades floating in the void, but something in my bones recognized it, and they ached. I was tied into Keta's belt because my mantle didn't have any form of propulsion. He pulled me from the ledge and we floated out into weightless vacuum. His force suit shimmered with blue fire along its trailing edges, zipping us away from the way shop and back toward the walled fortress. Keta had described to me the amount of security we'd likely confront and how we might defeat it. Plan A was to wait for an O-Targe to make a delivery at the castle, an event that happened with regularity on any but the most isolated habitats. There's one now, Keta's voice sounded in my hood, after we had waited no more than a minute. It was unmistakably headed for the docking bay at the rear of the castle, but Keta queried its manifest just to make sure. Ten seconds before it got there, Keta activated a matter scrambler and enveloped us within its static field. He then dropped onto the otarge and located the containers that would be offloaded. A moment was all he needed to crack the lock, and then we were inside one of the largest containers, sitting on sacks of flour and nitrates. He shut the panel behind us, and we waited in darkness. You can speak normally in here, he said. Smoothly done, partner. That was nothing, he objected. Any trite or cheat boy in the belts could do that. It's usually enough to get you into a habitat. The scrambler is just insurance. We'll have a minute to figure out how to get around the security at the dock. We felt a few bumps and nudges. The otarge had docked. The container landed with a thud in sudden gravity as it transferred to the castle. I sat impatient and waited for Keta to make his move. We opened the panel once the container had been silent and still for a good three minutes. We walked out of darkness into more darkness. We're in some hold or storage facility, Keta said. Let me see if I can access the local habnet. Yeah, it doesn't want to let me in, but it's got to. He performed a minor miracle with domestic security protocols, his fingers dancing over the glowing virtual screen. There. Okay, basic floor plans. We're in the back, near the gardens and the kitchens. Huh. Only 20 people actually live here. Then we won't have to worry too much about being seen. There's some high-end security on one of the towers, but that's normal for a man in Omen Dial's position. That's probably where he'll be. Lead on, I said. He slipped through the shadows of the outermost gardens. The squat redstone tower stood in isolation on a yard of level grass. Their next defense was obviously an old one, sight lines. We scouted around the perimeter, stealing from one shadow to the next at the base of the outer wall, trying to find a way to the tower's entrance without being spotted. There's always the sewers, I said to Keta, pointing at an iron grate beneath our feet. The castle was an eclectic mix of new and old. The grate was a mesh of ancient rusted bars, but the frame that held it was brand new chitin. It was easier for us to break through the iron. We dropped silently into the stinking miasma of the sewers. Fortunately, the effluvia of twenty people is not a lot, and by my estimation this crew seemed to eat even less than most. Still, it wasn't my favorite part of a trip. We crossed beneath the yard undetected. At a wide junction, we chose a narrow passage that looked like it headed beneath our tower. The grate at the far end, though, wasn't iron but chitin, and immune to our silent efforts to pass. Hold on. Keta muttered. There must be a lock or something on this thing, 
He queried the habnet security and found a master circuit to jump. The lock finally clicked, and we swung the grate inward with an audible creak. We stepped into a small, low room. We hoped it was the base of the tower, but we couldn't be sure. Large blocks of industrial equipment crowded the basement, pumps with pipes, bilges and hoses. We stepped to the far door and found it unlocked. On the other side of the door was the lowest step of a curving staircase. We began to climb. At the top of the stairs, we found a black resin trap door above our heads. It was closed but unlocked. Keta cracked it open and peered into the room above. He nodded to me and swung the trap door wide. We silently crept into the living quarters. The room was even more spartan than my cell on Kadya. It was an empty chamber of unfinished stone with a single blanket on the floor and a bucket. In the bucket, we found the remains of a meal. Through a doorway, we found an equally bare bathroom, with another bucket filled with stale water and a trap door to the sewers below, which served as a toilet. Ah, oh, we could have climbed all the way up here, I observed to Keta. He didn't appreciate the joke. We returned to the living quarters. Nothing about it suggested it was regularly visited, but it remained our best bet for contact. We decided to wait to see if a bit of patience might pay off. A few minutes later, it did. We had expected someone to come through the door, but instead it was the tower's sloping roof that slid open. A man sat perched on a ledge behind a balustrade, communing with the sky above. He sat unmoving for a long moment, then rose in a single smooth movement and descended a stepladder into the room. Keta and I waited, concealed by the matter scrambler, at the door. He padded across the cold stone floor, barefoot, and tipped the remaining food from the bucket into his hands. He ate. He was a thick-set man with short gray hair and a strong jaw. He wore a threadbare gray one-suit frayed at the cuffs and collar. We waited for him to finish and stepped toward the door. Then I spoke. Omen Dial. He stopped. His face froze. His eyes flicked sharply from point to point, seeking the source of the voice. His hand reached for the door, and he swung it open to escape. Keta slammed it shut before he could move. Omen Dial looked at the door, his eyes still flat and unreadable. He slowly backed himself against a nearby wall. Yes? Who are you? What do you want? Time to stop your operations in the Twelfth Ring, I said. He relaxed a fraction. Concern for his personal safety had been replaced by concern for his business. No chance, he answered. Who is this? We're asking the questions here, Keta snapped. He'd assured me there was little chance we could get Dial to voluntarily quit his racket, but we still needed to find out if he was the top of the PD food chain, or if he served someone else. Omen Dial was close enough for me to touch. He turned his head toward the light. Sanchel always insisted the Anna method uncovered deep truths about the universe. The more improbable the event, the more it revealed a hidden mystery. She considered me one of the most improbable creatures she'd ever met, but these twists and turns always seemed like the natural course of events to me. That is, until I met Omen Dial. He had aged since I knew him last, grown heavier and slower as we all do. His hair was receding and his eyes weren't quite as clear, but it was still him. I'm not doing nothing for nobody, he said gruffly, especially for someone who breaks into my home. Yes, you are, Patches. I told him. For the first time, a human emotion flickered across his fat face, a mixture of surprise and wonder and fear. 
Patches, he echoed softly. Who are you? Somebody who knows about the deal you cut with Sidereal. This had an even more dramatic effect than I thought it would. Patches thrust himself from the wall, his face a rictus of hate, and swung his attention wildly back and forth. Whoever you are, you'll regret this. I spoke rapidly. Why don't you tell us instead what Sidereal has been up to these last twenty or thirty years, Patches? Why don't you tell us why they killed so many people to hide their secrets? Why don't you talk about the forgotten 557 names on a serial killer's list and the security systems Sidereal spread throughout the orbs? Each accusation hit home with a shock. These secrets were obviously considered safely buried. I don't know what you're talking about, he declared gruffly. A child wouldn't believe him. What was it all for, Patch? What were they making up there on that platform? Why did the Brake Squad have to die? The Brake Squad? Now his brain was churning. There were no witnesses to that crime and no records. He desperately tried to figure out who could know these things. With a snarl of rage, he lashed out, swinging at the shadows. I finally stepped out of the Matter Scrambler's range to give him a target. He squawked in surprise to see a man appear out of nothing right in front of him. I grabbed him by the collar and slammed him back up against the walls. Why'd they kill Saro Oveal, huh, Patches? Our faces were inches apart. I could smell the fear on him. His eyes scanned my face, bewildered. Then he recognized me. Bloom, he croaked. Back from the dead. I punched him hard in the gut. He took it better than expected, snarling at me instead of bending over and gasping for air. So I hit him with my words instead. And all my questions about Sidereal these days led me here to you. So what do you know? What did they do to you that day? Do to me? A flicker of amusement shined through the rage in his eyes. Oh, they saved me. They put me back together, better than before. They made me a new man, Inspector, a better man than you. He pushed me away with surprising strength, but he didn't come after me. He just looked at me with dark eyes. You should have stayed dead, Blum. You should have kept all these questions to yourself, but now it's too late. You want to know why Sidereal killed all those people? It's called creating a market. The orbs were too trusting back then. The Doc Black didn't have nearly enough to do. For a corporation whose main business was security, that was an awful time. So here it was, the motive. As profound as a dead fish wrapped in a newspaper. The case could finally be solved now, but there was no satisfaction in it. So Sidereal created the threat just to sell more alarm systems? They killed people for a profit? After you were gone, he told me with satisfaction. Sales of those systems went up by a factor of 10,000. We installed them on every habitat in the orbs. But that wasn't enough for us. We hired thugs to break into platforms. We built a fleet of pirate ships to harass the silver orb. Sidereal even declared war on the navy, although the fools never realized it. Soon our efforts took on a life of their own and sustained themselves as the promo. The old order broke down and this new, wild world came to be. Then there was nothing but business opportunities everywhere. I was more shocked than I should have been, but that's how humans are. Keta appeared beside me. Omen Dial's dark eyes flicked to him. And who's this, your boyfriend? Keta's hand was a blur, backhanding patches across the cheek. I'm Sarah Oviel's son, and you're going to tell me why she died. Why? That's easy. She was getting too close. But now it was time for the last questions to be answered, the ones that always burned within me. So Sidereal killed her. Who did it? Who was responsible? 
How did they kill my partner? But Omen Dial just laughed, a wicked sound in that bare room. Well, now that's a question we're not ready to answer. I reached for him. Oh, you'll answer it. And who'll make me? Patch's head unhinged, the top of his head swinging open and his lower jaw dropping onto his chest. Tubes of gleaming metal rose from within his frontal lobe and lashed out at me, scoring me across the face with burning cold. You? Disgust welled up, choking me. Here the motors were again, as impossible to exterminate as ever. Sidereal saved your life but made you their slave, did they? No, not a slave, his voice was a hiss. I am more than a man, more than a machine. Sidereal has a dream, you stinking animal. It's to make us better than we are. But humanity always fights back, not knowing what is good for it. You wanted to fight with Sidereal? Why? The Dark Black is sidereal now, fully owned and operated. You think you're out to dispense some outdated form of justice, but you're just fighting the future. Chrome tendrils sprouted from his shoulders, bursting through the skin. Grayish blood seeped from the wounds and ran down his arms. The tendrils flayed me, wrapping themselves around my torso and neck, pulling me closer to this abomination. But I had come better prepared than he thought. We'd taken a three-hour detour to get here for a reason, and it had been hard to find the Rubicon Tengju 44 asteroid through the unmapped edges of the underway. But finally, we had. We had landed on its forgotten surface, broken through the seals covering the dock, and made our way into the core where the corrupted corpses of the motor-dust-infested miners still lay. We'd never understood how the motors really operated, even when Papa and I were in the nest and they had slid themselves into my brain. Saro had been the one who recognized that this malfunctioning dust might give us the insight we lacked. I pulled a sealed packet from my mantle and shoved it at the monster's cracked open face. You see this, Patches? You know what this is? His motor-corrupted body had blocked his throat. He was incapable of human speech and choking sounds rattled from his drooling mouth. A dozen eyes on stalks swiveled to the packet. It contained a severed gray finger. That's right, you miscreation. This is bad. This is cancer. I unsealed the packet. He only needed a whiff of dust before he recoiled with a screech and fell back against the far wall. I advanced on him. I may just be a stupid animal, but I'm alive. That's what the motors have never figured out how to be, and life beats dead things like you every time. With a final shriek, he climbed the wall as the roof slid open above him. Don't let him get away, I commanded Keta, who dove for the trailing tendrils. They knocked him back, and he landed at my feet. I pulled him up, and we climbed the narrow, winding stairs up to the roof, where the monster stood once more, communing with the sky. I tackled him from his perch, and we tumbled off the roof down the side of the sixty-meter-tall tower. I plummeted in the thing's grip as it roared at me, furious that I'd interrupted whatever message it was sending to its masters. We tumbled down, the lawn racing up to meet me. Keta's strong hands grabbed me by the shoulders and yanked me back from the impact. He held me, hovering in mid-air, his forsuit's blue flames keeping us aloft. The monster crashed to the yard below, but scrambled away unharmed. Thanks, Keta, I said. He looked at me with a light in his eyes I hadn't seen before. You're welcome, partner. Now let's go get him. He didn't need to tell me twice. 
We pursued Omen Dial through the castle as he raised an alarm. His terrible brethren came to his aid, emerging from doorways with chrome coils to lash us. Scarby and Saul barked, describing threats all the while in my ear. Keta's hand cannon roared. The monsters massed in the corridor ahead, and we annihilated them in a blaze of plasma. We fought our way from kitchen to hall and into the dungeons beneath. The motors were no match for our weapons and armor, but they slowed us down. By the time we had navigated the winding passages of the unlit dungeon, Omen Dial had gotten inside his hammer car and sped away. Keta launched us out into space in pursuit and called for our own car, which appeared alongside us a few kilometers from the castle. We grabbed hold of the chitin frame and pulled ourselves in, closing the hatch and roaring away. Omen Dial, directly ahead, fled through a gravity tornado into the underway. Now this was Keta in his element, the hot shot. He pushed the hammer car to its limit, plunging down into the painful blaze of light. We emerged onto a narrow lane crowded with looming spheres of rock. Keta drove like a demon. Every twist and turn scraped us against walls, and the chitin shell of the car screamed and erupted with sparks. Up ahead, the fleeing car was driven with equal recklessness, ramming itself through the floating spheres and bouncing off the walls at top speed. We screamed toward a junction, where major arteries held cross-traffic, plodding sedately on its course. Dial's hammer car hit the torques from the side like an arrow, spinning the massive transports and spilling their cargoes. We drove straight into the mess, Keta weaving with impeccable skill through the disaster. Can you get a clear shot? Keta called out over the noise. I'll try. I unlimbered the chop gun from its holster in the door and sealed my hood so I could lower the window. I leaned out, the chop gun booming in my grip, its stock slamming against my shoulder. I tore a chunk out of a hovering moon and blasted a spray of ice from a dirty comet sailing by, then on my third shot finally took a corner out of his car ahead. It slewed sideways, out of control, and slammed against a wall of matter. It raced up into the underworld before we could reach it. Omen Dial didn't stay long in the underworld. He wasn't trying to lose us. He was trying to get somewhere. I remained up on the side of our car with the chop gun, trying to get a clear shot, but the hammer car was too far ahead. Keta stamped on the brake. We juddered to a halt, and he took a hairpin turn up into a dark alley obstructed by piles of trash and tips lying on their sides. Our car knocked them aside as we squeezed through the alley, then ran roughly up a set of stairs and into a wide courtyard. No, not a courtyard, but a waste lot, with the burned stubble of a foundation under our chassis. On the far side of the lot, we slewed onto another road running parallel to the one we'd left. Dial's hammer car appeared to the right, weaving through traffic, racing for a distant tunnel of light. Keta hauled back on the butterfly wings of the steering wheel and launched us onto the road at an angle, aiming to land on top of the other car. Omen Dial must have seen us coming, for he swerved at the last moment and we crashed into his side. The two cars screeched down the narrow road, fighting for position. I raised the chop gun, but the cars veered apart to miss a yawning crack in the road. My shot was too high, flaring brightly in the gloom above. The cars slammed back together. Omen Dial was half-human in his seat beside me, tentacles gripping the wheel. A hand cannon appeared at his window. Keta hissed and pulled up again, lifting the car above the gout of plasma. It fired beneath us, but the muzzle flash blinded me. Then we raced into the tunnel of light. 
Thanks for listening to The Dark Black. Make sure to tune in next week for more crimes and murders across the solar system. But that's just the kind of thing you can expect here on The Unuseful Hour.